0: Good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. And and all got that extra hour of sleep last night, right? Feel charged up. How would you feel about being subject to an exceedingly powerful king who declared that every one of his decisions and actions was designed to exalt himself and that that was the one primary and overriding Motivation for everything that he did. If he was a fallen human being just like you and me, you'd probably find little consolation in knowing that self-exaltation was what guided all he chose to do that impacted you and impacted everyone that you cared about. And the reason that would be a little consolation is because all of our experience with human beings tells us that if somebody's primary goal in life is self-exaltation, that exaltation comes at the expense of everyone around them, right? Uh, It tends to be a mutually exclusive proposition for that person to pursue well-being, his own exaltation, and for those who are subordinate to him to have their well-being addressed. So if a man with that as his highest goal happened to also be your king, the problem is he'd also have the power and the authority to demand that his will be carried out. You would be a mere subject with no real power to resist. So anytime your well-being got in the way of his self-exaltation, guess which one would be discarded? By the way, that is one of the single biggest Objections that many people have to what they think Christianity is about. If you look at, at discussions and, and Facebook threads and such online, where I, I have some some dear friends in college who were trying to stand for the things of the Lord, and when they post something about the Lord, they get all kinds of vitriol in response. And one of the most common things that you hear is, "Why would anyone want to serve a God who only cared about Himself?" You certainly would not be grateful to the kind of king that these people are envisioning, one who makes your life nothing but a relentless, unrewarded burden in service of him. Fortunately, that seriously violates what God tells us about himself and his word. It's not the kind of king we serve. It's not the kind of situation in which we find ourselves as subjects and servants of the Most High God. We're going to look this morning at the essence of what the Bible calls worship and why worship is the most reasonable response that men can possibly have to God. And next week we're going to focus on the practice of worship, how we put into, into actual life's practice the things that God's word tells us about worship. Not only uh, when we come together as his people, but also day to day. Let's talk for a moment about what God calls worship. A good place to go is to look at the root meaning of the words that are translated worship in the Bible. In both Testaments, the word that is most Often translated worship has a has a root meaning both in Hebrew and in Greek that means to bow down uh, to bow down or to fall down in worship of God. Other words that are translated worship have a root connotation of to bow low to serve to pay homage to at the heart of all of these ideas is the acknowledgement that God is greater than we. His glory, His majesty, His beauty, His holiness, His power, His sovereignty, everything that He has made known to us about Him tells us that we find greater value in Him than we find in ourselves. Worship is the appropriate response of the lesser to the greater. And that's foundational to what the Bible calls worship. It is the acknowledgement and rendering unto God of that which is due to God because of who he is. Now there are some other verbs that are often included in context as synonyms of worship, and those verbs are glorify, honor, exalt, bless, praise, and give thanks to. And there again, those synonyms help kind of fill out our understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about worship. Worship, again, is the appropriate response of the lesser to the greater. Let's talk about how worship gets started. Where does worship begin? And the, the the very clear answer of Scripture is that worship begins with beholding God. In a passage we looked at last week on a very different topic, we saw that in Exodus chapter thirty-three, just before this segment from chapter thirty-four. Moses asked God to show him his glory and to show him his ways. And this this portion of uh, Exodus 34 verses 5 through 8 tells us what God did in response to that request. It says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And the very next thing that's said is Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He beheld God. He heard God's revelation of his own character in his own words, and his response immediately was to fall low to the earth and to worship. It was an irresistible response to one who had rightly understood God's revelation of himself. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we see Solomon's uh, response and the people's response after the new temple had been Consecrated uh, Solomon had completed Solomon and the people had completed the construction of the temple, and it was an amazing, amazing thing that God accomplished through them and It says, when Solomon had finished praying and dedication to the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the house. The priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord saying, Truly, He is good. Truly, His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. This is the irresistible response of those who rightly understand that which God makes known of Himself. In the history of God's people, some have gotten to behold God in fairly direct terms, like in these two instances, where they've seen some portion of God's glory, and they've heard the voice of God. But for most throughout the history of God's people, Our encounter of God doesn't involve the physical eyes, but instead involves the eyes of the heart. We behold God through his word and through his works. In chapter 8 of Nehemiah, after the people of Judah had been released from captivity, 70 years of captivity, and had come back into the city of Jerusalem and had rebuilt the walls with God's mighty interventions to make that happen, Ezra opened the book of the law of God and the people of Judah, who had, who were still recovering from all that had happened to them, stood up. But then as Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and prepared to begin reading God's word out loud, all the people of Judah bowed low and worshipped the Lord God with their faces to the ground. See, they were ready to behold God through his word. They had an attitude of worship on the front end. And then they heard the law, and it brought in, it brought about a, a contrition, a response, an amazing response. The people wept, and Nehemiah actually, uh, Ezra actually had to tell them, today is a day for rejoice. We have seen God, we have beheld his word, today is a day for rejoice. Worship is the irresistible response of those who behold God. And there are two possible ways that men can go when they behold God. Romans 1 tells us about one one of those ways. We've looked at that passage numerous times. That's the most common response of men. They see God, according to Romans 1, they see Him clearly. He made Himself evident, not only externally, but within men. And they took that revelation and they suppressed the truth. And they refused, in Romans 1, 20, they refused to honor Him as God, or to give thanks. We'll talk a lot about those two ideas in just a moment. They replaced the worship of the true God with the worship of whatever they could find that allowed them to maintain their illusion of self-determination. First and foremost, men worship themselves. And don't be deceived. It is a refusal to honor God, not insufficient evidence that drives men to that response. The much less common response among men to the revelation of the same God is the response of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Ezra and Mary and Peter and Paul and every other man or woman or child who has ever come to behold and to trust in the character and promises of God. And that response is worship. Now let's look at what mankind's failure tells us about the nature of true worship. In Romans 1, 18-21, it says again that the wrath of God is directed toward men because of this. He made himself known to them. He made them himself known to, to mankind clearly, externally and internally. And they are without excuse Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. They did not do either of the two things that throughout the rest of the Bible constitute the heart of worship. There are two aspects of true worship in Scripture. Honor and thanksgiving. In Psalm 86, verse 12, It says, I will give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forever. The word translated honor, by the way, in Romans, in Psalm 103, excuse me, in Romans 1, they did not honor him as God, is the word glorify. They did not glorify him. It means to acknowledge the weightiness of God. Okay. So the psalmist on the positive side, when he's getting worship right, he says, I will give thanks to Thee, O Lord my God, and I will glorify Thy name. Psalm 105, 1 through 5. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people, sing to Him, sing praises to Him, speak of all His wonders, glory in His holy name, honor and thanksgiving. Honor for His name and for his works, and thanksgiving for the blessings that proceed from his name and his works. We're going to look closely at those two ideas that are at the heart of biblical worship. Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2. Honor to God is all about his name and his works, his deeds. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And then in a parallel statement, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Psalm 105, give thanks to the Lord. That's the thanksgiving part. Here's the honor part. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. You see the two pieces there. His name. his works. That's what we glory in. That's what we honor about God. His name and his works. Okay, what does that mean? Well, his name is his character. The name of God is all that is true about who God is, his attributes, his nature. Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Throughout the Bible, the name of God encompasses all that he is. We could go through many, many verses on this, but I've got to press on. His name is his character. The second aspect or facet of our honor to God is his works. Psalm one hundred three verse two. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Now the word benefits in that verse is very, very interesting. We think at first glance that it means the benefits we receive from God. But the word means that which one deserves based on his deeds. It's the same word translated deeds in Proverbs twelve fourteen. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words and the deeds of a man's hand will return to him. King James says the recompense of a man's hand will return to him. What is recompense? It's like wages. It's like what you have earned. Okay? That's what that word means. Forget none of his recompense. None of that which is due to God because of that which he has done. This word is used very consistently in this way in the Old Testament. It doesn't refer to the benefits that accrue to others because of someone's deeds. It refers to the benefits that accrue to the person who did the deeds. In Psalm 103, verse 2, the word has God as its subject. It's definitely not talking about us getting what we deserve because of our works. Quite the opposite. The very next line in Psalm 103 says, God pardons all your iniquities. And then later it says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Praise God that He has not given us our recompense. The verse is talking about the works of God's hands that bring to Him the benefits, the just deserts that rightfully belong to Him alone. In short, when David tells his own soul, not to forget any of God's benefits. He's saying to himself, don't forget what all of God's creation owes to him in light of his marvelous works, the works that reflect his name, his character. In Psalm 103, verse 8, David repeats the first part of God's own declaration of his character. That he revealed to Moses back in Exodus 34. David repeats those words. He says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And then as he proceeds to praise God for his gracious works, he comes over, he comes back over and over again to the character of God. You can read through the passage when you have time, but in Psalm 103 in verses 11 and 17, in, In the context of praising God for the works that he does, he refers to God's loving kindness. Verse 13, to God's compassion. Verse 14, to his omniscience. Then his forbearance, his righteousness, his sovereignty, and his dominion. This interplay is critical to understanding the nature of biblical worship. We honor God's name, his character, and we honor him for his works that point right back to his character. It all is about him. Every deed that God does points us back to him. We honor God for his name. That's who he is. We honor him for his works. That's his actions in creation that demonstrate who he is. Let me give you just a couple of quick examples of the same pattern. There are hundreds of them in the Bible. Psalm 29. I gave you the first part of that before. Ascribe to the Lord. O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then it says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And then proceeds in verses 3 through 9 to talk about His works. And it's very interesting because it's all about what His voice accomplishes. God spoke everything into being. And now He speaks. And I believe the analogy, the metaphor that's being spoken of here is thunder and lightning. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of, the, the God of glory thunders. He's over many waters. His voice is powerful. His voice is majestic. It breaks the cedars. It breaks the, in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. Makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Hews out flames of fire, shakes the wilderness, makes the deer to calve, and strips the forest bare. And then it says, in his temple, everything says glory. (laughs) I love you, brother. His name, his name, and his works that point to his name. Psalm 86, David says, In the day of my trouble I shall call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. There is no one like thee among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like thine. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. Thou art great, and thou doest wondrous deeds. You see the the constant interplay between these two ideas. Thou alone art God. I love it, he says, Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify thy name forever. For thy loving kindness toward me is great, and thou hast delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. How do we know the loving kindness of God? Beloved, we talked about it this morning. There is no greater evidence than the cross. We know the character of God because of the deeds of God and because of the word of God. And they're all speaking the same thing to us. God's revelation of Himself is one revelation. And it calls us to fall on our faces in worship. We honor God for who He is, and we honor God for His works that demonstrate who He is. Before I go further, I want to just give another by the way and that is that one of the reasons the exaltation of men makes so little sense has to do with predictability whatever you think you know about a man's character you may find yourself very surprised at some point because men very often act in complete contradiction to whatever they have made known about their character ask any policeman How many times he has heard from a mother or a neighbor or someone who says they know that other person intimately, I can't believe he would do something like that. Fortunately, it doesn't work that way with God. Don't get me wrong. In respect to the things that God has not made known to us about himself, he can be very, very unpredictable. (laughs) John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus says, When it comes to knowing who God is going to save, who it is that the Spirit is going to touch, it's like the wind. You can't predict it. But beloved, in respect to all that God has clearly made known to us about himself, which is a whole lot, he is altogether predictable. He will always act in keeping with that which he has made known about his character There will be no exceptions. And once we know what he has revealed about who he is, we therefore know that we have cause to celebrate all that he does and all that he will do. We honor God for his name and for his works. That's the first part of worship. The second component of worship woven throughout Scripture is thanksgiving. For the blessings that proceed from his name and his works. Again, even our thanksgiving is all about who he is. Everything about God that moves us to honor him has him as its focus. But in passage after passage, it's clear that the works that God does that bring deserved honor and praise to him also bring marvelous blessing to his people blessing that we don't deserve. Indeed, we deserve the opposite. In short, throughout Scripture, that which exalts God blesses the people of God. God's character and his works bring amazing blessing to his people. In Psalm 103, verse 8, David says, talked about this just a moment ago. He refers back to Exodus 34. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. That's God's character. That's his name. Psalm 103 verses 6 and 7. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Those are some of God's works. Now look where he goes with the whole rest of this psalm. The character and works of God bring blessing to His people. God pardons all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. He satisfies your years with, with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west so far has He separated our sins from us. Why? Because of who He is. God's character and works bring amazing blessing to His people. This, beloved, is what makes the worship of the true God, the King of kings, the most reasonable and sensible thing that men can do. We serve the Most High God. He is absolutely sovereign over all of His creation. He can do whatever He wants to do. No one and nothing can thwart his will. And he does what he does for the sake of his holy name. So that his character will be manifest, demonstrated in all of his creation. And all of creation will bow down in exaltation of him who alone is worthy of that exaltation. But by God's amazing design, that which honors and glorifies him... Blesses his people. It's the failure to get that amazing and simple truth that makes many men reject God and look for blessing elsewhere. See, the problem is you cannot start with the pursuit of blessing and end up with blessing. You have to start with and continue in the pursuit of God in order ever to experience blessing. Because The only blessing that God has designed to give to men comes when we honor him as God and give thanks. Because that's true, in passage after passage of the Bible, when men worship the Lord, the words that they direct toward him are filled first with honor and then with with humble and profound thankfulness. Honor in response to who God is and what he has done and thankfulness for the blessings that come to his people because of who he is and what he's done. Now, we tend to think that any focus on the blessings that we derive from God's actions somehow distract from worship, that they take our eyes off God and put, put them on us. <laughs> but see, that's the opposite of how it's supposed to work the very same interventions in his creation by which God meets and always exceeds our true needs prove that he is who he says he is and he does what he says he does. And when we acknowledge that, it always puts our eyes right back where they belong, on him. Our thankfulness to him for what he does isn't about us. It's always and only about him. Now there's a critical corrective that we have to keep in mind in order to avoid turning blessing into a man-centered proposition. If the sovereign power of God ever became devoted to giving us what we told him we need, the result would be catastrophic. But fortunately, that ain't going to happen. Our blessedness depends only on God's character, not... On our wants, or on our perceived needs, or on our preferred timing. Only on His character. It is only because God acts for the sake of His own name, in keeping with His own character, that we receive blessing in the first place. The fact that 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 which honors God blesses us doesn't mean that God acts for our sake. That's where we get goofed up. The best possible thing that could be true of us is that God doesn't act for our sake, but He acts for His. And we will never be truly thankful to God until we understand and embrace that simple truth. God does not react to me. He acts based on His character, and that works out infinitely better for me than if He met my needs on my terms. Fortunately, God always acts for the sake of His great name. I'll show you a passage that always blows me away. This is the lead-in to the New Covenant in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36. God declares in verse 21, he's talking about Judah, and he's talking about how Judah acted when they were in exile for 70 years, and what happened to his reputation in those nations where he sent them into exile. He said, I had concern for my holy name, Ezekiel 36, 21. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Is there any question here about the accusation? (laughs) And he says, Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And as soon as you read that, you say, Oh my goodness, Israel is about to get it. The hammer is about to drop. They shamed God among the nations to which he had sent them in judgment, and he's about to fix that. He's going to show those nations and Israel who's actually calling the shots. And it will be gracious of God if Israel even survives what God is about to do. But look at what happens in the very next verses. God says, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people. And I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. How can it be, my brothers and sisters, that when God acts for the sake of his holy name, we get blessed eternally and beyond measure? How could we want it any other way? How could we want to tell God what we need? How could we ever say anything to God about what we deserve? We have cause to be thankful every minute of every day that God has made us the objects of his grace and that he has acted for the sake of his holy name. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk is speaking in a context in which he's waiting for the invasion that is about to come by the hand of God. And he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Before I go any further, if you live in an agricultural economy and your crops and your herds are the sole means of physical provision that you have, then when the fields are producing no food and there are no cattle in the stalls, it doesn't look like God is making you stand very securely. It doesn't look like you have cause to be thankful to the God who controls your well-being. But Habakkuk says, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds feet, and He makes me walk on my high places. And he says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. That means this is a liturgy. This is a song that was sung by the congregation of Israel. Brothers and sisters, no matter how hard this life gets, no matter how painful the refiner's fire becomes, no matter how much the world determines to hate you because of Jesus Christ, know that you are blessed because of who God is. And if Habakkuk could write and sing words like these, how much more must we? We who have the fullness of God's revelation of himself, the full story of His amazing plan throughout the ages to call out and redeem a people for His own possession through the atoning blood of His one and only Son. How much more do we have cause to be thankful to God with all our hearts, with all our might, all the time? (laughs) We know that our hope does not disappoint. We know that our destiny For all who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, our destiny is filled with blessing for all eternity because of who God is and what God does. I need no other evidence that it is well with my soul. And neither do you. I believe the reason our worship is sometimes muted and stifled is because we are either unconvinced of these things or we are so distracted by lies that we forget them. I want to wrap up with a question. Do any of the passages about worship that we've looked at or any of the examples of worship that we've looked at emphasize requests that men make of God? The answer is no. God wants and intends for us to bring every request to him. There's no question about that. But our prayers of petition do not constitute worship. Worship is not asking God to do something He has not done. Worship is honoring God for who He is and what He has done and what He does because of His character. It is overflowing with thankfulness for the blessings that we constantly and eternally receive from His hand because of who He is. Beloved, what percentage, uh, what percentage of your time alone with God between Sundays consists of anything other than requests that you are making of God. For some, I fear that that answer is near zero. For some believers, the only interaction they have with God from day to day is to hurl requests in his direction and hope that some of them stick. But considering what these passages have to tell us about the nature of godly worship, of what happens in genuine worship, We need to think about what happens instead when our approach to God focuses on asking him for things he has not yet given. Even our requests to God are to be filled with thanksgiving in advance. When I was 16 years old and only months old in the Lord, and I was discovering day by day the miracle of overcoming crippling anxiety, I committed to memory Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus. According to that passage, what must always accompany every request that we make of God. Thanksgiving in advance. The certainty of our well-being and the basis for our thankfulness is not our circumstances, beloved. It is God's character, and that never changes. Loving Father, there is much to consider here, and this feels to me like scratching the surface, but I pray, Lord, that the, that at least the big ideas here are evident to us. Father, you call us, you call us to fall on our faces before you as we behold you. And to respond to you by honoring your name and your works and by being filled with thanksgiving because of the blessedness that we receive from your hand because of who you are and what you do. Blessings that we could never deserve. Blessings Father, that that lasts for eternity. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, that you would make this body of believers a body that is overwhelmed with gratitude toward you, with honor toward you. I pray that as we go from here this morning and we go about our daily lives and that that when, when we think about how we're coming to you, Lord, we would also think about what it means to really worship you. And that would be what we major in, Father. That would be what defines and overwhelms our interaction with you every single day. Teach us to behold you and to rightly respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen.